name is Alexander Medic, and you are listening to Disrupt Development, the podcast that shares inspiring stories of disruptive thinkers and doers from global development. Log frames, theory of change, outputs, outcomes, impact, all buzzwords global development practitioners are familiar with, but often do not use effectively. Theory of changes are being mainly used as beautiful design products that do not change over time. Long-term impact often cannot be measured due to short project timeframes, and monitoring and evaluation is often being seen as too complicated and giving less of a priority. In this podcast, I will talk with Eliana about Monitoring Evaluation 2.0, the journey towards effectiveness. We will talk about the current challenges of monitoring and evaluation in global development, the ineffective use of monitoring and evaluation tools, the importance of assumptions, experiments and minimum viable products, and the journey of how RW Media became a data-driven organization. There's this funny cartoon that I recently used in a, in a presentation about, um, you might have seen it, about these guys who are building a bridge and until they come to the point where they realize they're trying to cross a sea and one of them says, we should have built a boat instead. <laughs> and I think it captures the essence quite well where uh, a lot of us at the start of a program start out with thinking that we're crossing a river. And so you start finding the most suitable intervention, which in this case is a bridge. But halfway through, the context changes and the river becomes a sea or an ocean. And then you have to adapt. And the problem with log frames and the incorrect use of TOCs is that we commit to a bridge at the start of the program. And only after five years or, or later, we find out that it was actually no longer suitable because the context changed. Eliana Annemaat combines her roots in social and cultural anthropology with a specialization in impact evaluation and data-driven innovation in the nonprofit sector. She has worked with organizations in the field of HIV AIDS, sexual and reproductive health and rights, and inclusive governance to support them in becoming more effective. Welcome Eliana to the Disrupt Development Podcast. I'm happy to have you here. Thanks, Alexander. Happy to be here. Great, welcome. So um, looking at the latest trends in global development and moving towards global development 2.0, it's often about moving from good intentions to hard results, showing hard results. Um, Having a quality, high quality M&E system is becoming even more important for actors in global development. So today we're going to talk about M&E monitoring and evaluation the beautiful word, uh, the buzzword within global development, a crucial process as well within the work of global development, however, often being neglected or found a little bit too difficult perhaps by global development professionals. So Eliana, you are an expert in M&E, very curious uh, to to learn more from your experiences. Um, But let's start with uh, the first question, what should M&E be about and what should it not be about? I could... I could probably give you a very long answer, but it might be easier just to go with a short one. I think it should be about what I would call the great pursuit of effectiveness. I think that's the main objective of what m should be about and everything else is secondary. What it should not be about, um, despite understanding how this sometimes happens is that it shouldn't be about spinning everything into a positive story. I think that's the biggest danger of, of m and is that it becomes all about manipulating data to the point where you can safely say that you have done a great job regardless of the actual outcomes. Okay, very clear. Uh, pursuit of effectiveness, uh, beautifully spoken. 
Um, let's dive into the second part you also mentioned in, um, in your answer. Uh, you stated the challenge. Uh, what I'm curious about is um, what are some of the major challenges in global development when we talk about m and &E? You already mentioned one, but I assume there are also many more. There's a lot going on. And I think um, a lot of people working in the general development sector that they will recognize this, but it has some significant effects on monitoring and evaluation. And I think one of the major trends that a lot of us will recognize is the global rise of conservatism and nationalism. Uh, and you see that um, there's an increasing pressure to justify and be accountable for all of the foreign aid spending, the international development spending. More and more political parties are asking for justification. What are you doing with all of that money? How is it helping us? How is it helping our country? And to make that more complex, we also see a growing or a growing awareness of rapidly changing context. So think about, for example, digitalization. Um, it's, it's, it's going everywhere. Uh, interventions are becoming digital with COVID happening in the last year. We can see that more and more organizations are focusing more on digitalizing their approaches. Uh, but we also see things like polarization and the spread of misinformation. I mean, 10 years yeah. ago, 10 years ago, would you have thought that fake news would be a term that would be in everyone's vocabulary. I sure as hell, I did not expect that. And it has changed the way that we look at evidence. And it also changed the way that we are expected to work. We're supposed to work faster, more agile. We're supposed to adapt to all of this happening around us. And I think ultimately this leads to a widely felt pressure that we need to become more innovative. We need to achieve more impact. We need to create more value for money. Like you said, you cannot get away anymore with just having good intentions. It's not enough. You have to prove that your strategies are effective, that they're efficient. And of course, they have to be sustainable long after the project ends. And all of that needs to happen in this strict framework of, of preset objectives and activity plans and, and budgets with <laughs> preferably like minimal overhead rates. And I think anyone working in monitoring and evaluation that uh, we feel the pressure of having to somehow prove long-term impact long before it has even happened yet. So yeah, there's a lot happening. Wow, that's a beautiful summary of uh, all the challenges uh, <laughs> you brought together in, uh, in, the, in this answer. Uh, um, let's make it perhaps a little bit more concrete. Um, mm -hmm. I've been working for many years uh, with uh, theory of changes. That's something I think every development professional knows what that is. Uh, previously, we have been working with log frames. Um, so log frames are very much outdated, right? Um, and originally created as a rigid planning tool for military purposes for those individuals who do not know that. And basically, it does not reflect the social reality of global's biggest challenges. Um, however, what I often see happening is that log frames are often still being used um, all around the world. Um, then um, the update of log frames um, some 10 years ago, perhaps, uh, um, uh, were the theory of changes that succeeded the log frames, like I mentioned. And they do provide the opportunity to take show on how and why a desired change is expected to happen in a particular context. Um, but again, also from my own experience, um, I'm not an M&E expert, but I have been working and developing a theory of changes. What I've been seeing in, in, in many of the programs I've been part of, um, and, but also what I know from, from colleagues, is that this theory of changes, we develop them at the initiation uh, of, the, of the project or program. 
or a strategy. Um, and then it's just a beautiful visual that basically we share with our donors, with our partners and <laughs> yeah. for communication purposes. Um, and they're not being used um, uh, for what they have been designed for, basically as a tool to test the underlying assumptions in order to measure progress and, and eventually the impact, of course. Um, I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, being an uh, M&E expert, um, what is your take on, on lock frames and, and theory of changes as well? How do you use them? Let me start by saying that a theory of change, the idea, the concept of a theory of change is a wonderful effort to change this prevalent obsession with locking down these long-term project activities that you've often seen in a, in a log frame, this, this set framework at the start of a project and you never look at it again until it's time to evaluate your project. I, th I think we've all been in those ones. And I think the idea of the change- Yeah, it happens <laughs> still. And so th the concept of a TOC is wonderful. It's a great effort to change this. And it really tries to shift from this activity focused way of thinking towards a more goal oriented way of thinking, uh, which in theory leaves room for adaptation. And I think we've all seen this eh? in, in a theory of change. You can see that the part that's really about your interventions and your activities, it's at the bottom. There's like a small part. 90% of the TOC is about this cascade of change, how you think that your intervention, small as it may be, may lead to this ripple effect of changes ultimately leading up leading up to your your vision of, of of how you want the world to be but the thing is ultimately it's not about the toc as a tool it's about the mindset around it and you can change the tool you can have log frames you can have tocs but it won't actually make a difference unless people's mindset mindsets change along and, with it and what is that mindset it's about understanding the the key of, of, of adaptation and innovation and ensuring that you don't, you don't set your project activities at the start of the project. And then after five years to find out that things worked out differently than you thought. There's this funny cartoon that I recently used in a, in a presentation about, um, you might've seen it about these guys who are building a bridge and until they come to the point where they realize they're trying to cross a sea. And one of them says, we should have built a boat instead. Yeah. And I think it captures the essence quite well, where uh, a lot of us at the start of a program start out with thinking that we're crossing a river. And so you start finding the most suitable intervention, which in this case is a bridge. But halfway through, the context changes and the river becomes a sea or an ocean. And then you have to adapt. And the problem with log frames and the incorrect use of TOCs is that we commit to a bridge at the start of the program and only after five years or later, we find out that it was actually no longer suitable because the context changed. And so if I, if I look at where is the trouble, I think a lot of NGOs are still stuck in a sort of a log frame, log frame mindset. And this is not necessarily by their own fault. Like I, I said before, we have to adhere to such strict rules and guidelines for grants that it becomes Truthfully, it becomes very difficult to adopt any kind of flexibility that is necessary yeah. to making a TUC work the way it was meant to work. Yeah. So, so talking about these guidelines for for grants, um, and I think uh, it's 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 basically the entire global development um, um, as a sector we are stuck in in a log frame uh, mindset. To give an example, make it very practical. Major global development programs, for example, um, around the globe run for three to five years usually, right? 
And um, eventually we have the midlines after two years and we have the endlines evaluations after five years or perhaps even in a, in a sixth year. Um, so this means that a five-year program only starts to seriously validate the interventions after two and a half years. It links to the point you were uh, making. Exactly. Um, the evaluation can take a whole year in itself, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so the upshot is that it can be three and a half years before any meaningful actual insights emerge on what is working. And one could argue, yeah, but we are organizing these, uh, you know, biannual um, uh, workshops and meetings and we look at the progress. But even within those meetings, I haven't seen any like incremental changes happening uh, within the within the theory of changes or within the programs. Um, so I'm curious, like, what is your experience in these like five-year, three-year programs, and how do we need to be um, uh, mindful about uh, change and and basically, like, in your words take a theory of change mindset instead of still working according to the log frame mindset? I think there's two things to consider here. One is very practical. Um, we always seem to have trouble with aligning timelines. So when you talk about bi-weekly workshops, when you talk about evaluations, because we have midterm evaluations, it's not that we necessarily wait for five years to evaluate. But the problem is that we... Um, also have deliverables and commitments to when we have to, for example, deliver our new work plans to the donor or when we uh, roll out the new plans across our different partners. Often you see that the workshops or the type of moments for evaluation and reflection, um, they happen around the same time that the new plans are also being made. And you can even uh, see the same thing happening if you look broader on, on program level, you notice that a lot of the evaluations that are done for, for a program, they're done in the exact same year as the new programs are being developed, which means that practically you cannot take on any of the insights that you might get from an old program into the design of a new one because they all overlap. And this makes it very difficult to, to, to continue or to improve because you, you, you're stuck in this cycle the spiral that just goes down of repeating and repeating what you've been doing based on your yeah based on a general sense that this might work but not based on actual evidence or, or insights from evaluations yeah that makes it very difficult and regarding like how do we move from a log frame mindset to a tuc mindset i think and this might sound familiar to to you because i know that you've talked about innovation in some of your your other podcast episodes but for me, one of the most interesting things about the theory of change concept is that it, I would say it courageously tries to adopt one of the core elements of, of lean innovation, which is the importance of testing assumptions and adapting accordingly. And the first time, the first time I went to a TOC workshop, so early on in my career, the first time when I, I developed a theory of change, um, I remember that about 30% of the workshop was about the context, understanding the needs of the, the population you're working with, um, getting a good problem statement out there. And then most of the workshop was about identifying the pathways. Like, so how are we going to resolve this? Mm. How can we contribute to that? And then on the final day, the last hour, the last, um, the last 30 minutes, perhaps. Even. The last 30 minutes. Identifying the assumptions, always, right? You always run out of time at a theory yeah. of change workshop. <laughs> and the last 30 minutes, um, the exercise is to identify assumptions. And then everyone, of course, 
those of, of, of the participants who haven't worked with it yet, they're like, okay, but what are assumptions? And I think the most common description that I've heard is that assumptions are factors that could influence the project, but are beyond your control, mm. which is true, I suppose. But I think this description has led to a lot of misunderstandings because it puts the emphasis on uh, beyond your control. And what happens is that um, people start looking at their, at, their, at their pathways of change. And then the question is, why do you think that this outcome leads to the next outcome? What's the assumption behind it? And I wanna, let, let me give you an example of, of one of the type of activities that I think are very common in Please. advocacy programs, yeah. uh, which is uh, capacity strengthening. So there's a general understanding that in order to do successful and collective advocacy, you need to transfer the skills and the knowledge necessary to advocate for your own rights. So in any advocacy uh, project that has a capacity strengthening component, you will find some sort of workshop or training intervention in yep. there. So the most common assumption that I, that I have seen, I have made, and I, I recognize in many programs is that people say, okay, so the assumption is that if I train people uh, about the, the necessity to claim their rights, and I, I give them the knowledge and the skills, then they will then be able to claim their rights and advocate for their rights. That's the assumption, which in itself isn't, it's not not true, but it makes you wonder, what about making this assumption explicit is gonna help me in, in making sure that my program is effective. And so what I'm, I'm often trying to explain to people when we work on assumptions is that, first of all, I know the donor's asking for assumptions and I know you just wanna get it over with, but if you're serious about making a change in your program, you've gotta treat these assumptions with a little bit more, more respect. And so if you're talking about training people and transferring skills and knowledge, the assumption is not, um, if I give them the knowledge and the skills, then, then they're gonna use the knowledge and the skills. The assumption here that's actually useful is asking yourself, what is currently the biggest barrier for people which stops them from claiming their rights or advocating for their rights? Is it, we think, for example, we think that it might be a lack of knowledge and know-how in terms of how they need to claim yeah. their rights. And that's why we wanna offer the trainings. But is this really the case? Is this the biggest barrier, the knowledge and the skills? And this is then an assumption that you can actually start investigating because it could also be something else. It could be the fact that they are in a community where the peer pressure is so strong that even if they know how to claim their rights or how to advocate, they still prefer not to do it because the social consequences will be too severe. Or maybe they want to and they have the skills and the knowledge, but then they don't actually have the time or money to invest into accessing the platforms where a lot of advocacy takes place. And so those are the type of assumptions that will be useful for you to, to, to keep track of whether your intervention is actually going to be successful. There's nothing wrong with training people, but you need to make sure that this is indeed the main barrier that stops them from, from doing advocacy in this case. So basically what you're saying is the road to effectiveness, uh, the road towards showing your impact is constantly testing your assumptions and perhaps even giving assumptions a bigger priority than anything else and exploring how these assumptions can be uh, proven or not. Exactly. And understanding that assumptions are not about what's beyond your control. It's about 
an external factor that might make or break the success of your intervention. So talking about assumptions, one of the uh, uh, the gurus in testing assumptions in social impact programs for basically global development is Anne-Mai Chang. Um, she wrote a book, Lean Impact, about how we need to uh, uh, use the methodology of testing assumptions in order to basically um, increase our impact or maximize our impact and increase our scale, increase the st- sustainability of uh, projects and programs. And uh, she brings it down to, to assumptions. Um, she also states and explains that there is a difference in terms of uh, targets or measurements And this is something I would like to also get your thoughts on. So she argues that there is a difference between vanity metrics versus actionable or uh, how she calls it innovation metrics. Um, And she argues that vanity metrics have spread throughout global development like a disease. Um, If you go to a website of a nonprofit, um, we always talk about how many people we have reached. We have reached an X amount of uh, individuals, whether that's a million in the thousands. But we shine with these numbers, right? With these engagements. Uh, she argues that with enough funding, you can reach any number you, you're aiming to reach. So what does that actually tell us um, about whether the solution works, if people want it, uh, if something is growing, and in particular, uh, for what cost um, uh, those numbers have been reached? Um, so that got me thinking about uh, what targets we put on our projects and programs and what impact we are actually measuring or trying to share with, uh, with our um, constituencies. Um, would you agree with her? Yes. Yes, in the sense that vanity metrics have absolutely overtaken at the expense of meaningful metrics. Um, I think we all we all recognize this, but I, I don't think that vanity metrics by definition are something bad. I think the problem with vanity metrics is that um, they easily become the only thing that people look at because they're usually easy to get. They're similar to, to what we often call outputs. Um, the number that we can control, the number of people that we train, the number of people that we reach. Um, and it's a start, right? These are our outputs. They don't say anything about the result after that. They just say something about um, the scale on which you've, you've, you've implemented your intervention. And for me, there's nothing wrong with numbers that indicate scale, as long as you combine it with something that tells you more about the quality. And for me, the fact that vanity metrics have overtaken quality metrics, I consider it part of, of what you could call fast food culture. People just want to get numbers served on their plate, no complications, no nuances, no mm, difficult explanation needed, no context, just here is your number, you can consume it and you can be happy about it. And I understand that in such a world where you're you're perpetually busy, (laughs) that you don't want to get all of the explanations and the context behind the numbers. But the truth is that vanity numbers by themselves, they don't say, they don't tell you anything about the effect of your interventions. And so in order for vanity metrics to, to serve its purpose, you have to combine it with quality metrics about what then indeed is um, the result of the people that you've reached with your interventions. What effect has it had on them? And in digital marketing, this is often known as, as conversion, right? It's the number of people you reach and then versus the number of people that actually buy the product, or if we would have to translate it to our context, the number of people that are positively affected by your intervention. 
And in, in, in some examples, this is, is fairly easy to calculate. But I would argue, again, in, in, in some of the more complex programs, including on advocacy, um, conversion is very difficult to, to calculate. Because how would you determine conversion in the context of, of long-term policy change? If you work on environmental programs, what then is, is the conversion? Is it a change in the environment or is it the number of policies that you might have changed? But what if those number of policies are changed back the second a new president comes into power? Um, and, and what about social norm change? How, how do you then calculate conversion? There are so many factors that influence these positive or negative outcomes that conversion becomes very difficult to calculate. So in that sense, I, I, I agree with um, the argument that vanity metrics are meaningless uh, unless you combine it with quality metrics. But the real challenge here, of course, is to determine what then is quality. And this all comes back to being able to very specifically capture the objective that you're trying to achieve. Because this is something that a lot of organizations still struggle with. They tend to slip into the broad abstract definitions of change, people to claim their rights, people to be able to make informed decisions, health to be uh, improved, poverty to be reduced. But you're going to have to operationalize it. Otherwise, you'll never be able to actually understand what you're achieve achieving. Exactly. Um, so actually you're saying is that we need to move from good intentions to results, but from results to quality metrics, that's even a step beyond uh, the results. Um, yeah. Great, um, a great conclusion. Uh, so talking about the operationalization part of uh, things, uh, moving towards um, your organization. Um, um, uh, so you work uh, for RNW Media, which is an expertise center that builds digital communities for social change, in particular for young people. Um, you reach millions and millions of young people around the globe with crucial information um, uh, through digital platforms, amongst others. Um, in the past years, you have been working towards becoming a data-driven organization. Could you perhaps uh, give us some tips and tricks on, or some experiences, challenges you encountered within this journey of becoming data-driven and moving towards uh, quality metrics as an organization. Um, yeah. Yeah, sure. So maybe to start off with that, uh, my interest in data-driven programming or decision-making started way before I joined RW Media. Um, it was very early on in my career that I, I was doing like project management, some occasional m and &E at the side. And one of the things I noticed way before I understood or had an opinion about the politics of, of international development is the number of the sheer amount of data that was being collected um, uh, through the programs. Um, and that was produced in these organizations, but it was only used for reporting and compliance or mainly used for reporting and compliance. And, and I felt that there were like treasures buried in all of that data. And, and if I would only dig them up, if I would only find the treasures in all of those data sets that we could massively improve the way we uh, did our interventions. And sort of with that treasure hunter attitude, I started digging more and more into these data sets to find out um, what patterns can you find there? What does that say about, about interventions? When can we identify the factors that determine 
whether something is successful or not. And this was part of the reason why at some point I joined RNW Media because I knew that 80% of their interventions are digital. And that is quite different from any of the NGOs that I had worked before. And it felt to me like, like a playground because working 80% digital interventions means that there's a lot of automatically generated data that comes with it. Everything you do online is somehow captured in analytics. And so I came there with the idea, like, this is where I can try out new things when it comes to data-driven decision-making. And sure enough, because of the sheer scale of, of RNW Media's intervention with, from the top of my head, more than 5 million social media followers globally um, who are interacting on a daily basis with the content on the website, the question then is not, where do we get the data from? The question is, what data of in this massive, massive jungle of data is useful to us and tells us something. Yeah. And this is where my understanding of vanity metrics also came because it's easy to get lost in the jungle of, of analytics where everything sounds impressive. Impressions to start with, the number of times your message is displayed on someone's screen, that can easily run into the millions and it might make you feel like you're being super successful. But what does an impression mean? And so I started educating myself more and more into what is the quality behind these metrics? What does yeah. it say? And you start looking at different things. You don't look at how many people you reach. You look at how long they're staying on your website or uh, how quickly do they leave your website? And then what content are they most interested in? And this was for me, the start of, of trying to figure out how we can become more data-driven as an organization. And it was quite an adventure because unlike many NGOs, RNW Media combined different um, groups of experts. They had their traditional NGO program managers who know everything about how to develop programs, how to fundraise for them. We had our digital experts, the guys who developed the website, the girls who do SEO, everything um, on the technical side. And we had our data analysts, the people that understand every single bit about Google Analytics and what metrics say um, anything at all. And then we had our media experts, the people that know how to do persuasive storytelling. And it was, it was, it's, it's such an interesting combination because um, you start looking differently at a lot of the problems. You no longer look at things from an NGO lens. You start looking at things from a multidisciplinary lens, but it comes with challenges too, because no one speaks each other's language. And so there was a lot of communication needed in order to understand that we were all on the same page. You know, what my colleague would call conversion for me was impact. And then what for someone was impact was for me just an output. So we had to constantly communicate to figure out what are we trying to achieve here? And some of my colleagues from the digital team said, well, I just want people to click on this button. And I said, yeah, me too. But then I want them to actually access the service that they're looking, um, they're looking for. And the first thing that um, I did with my colleagues was to introduce dashboards that would allow us to channel all of those different data sets from the 30, 40, 50 platforms that we had into one data lake, one place where all of that data comes together. And then to have dashboards to visualize uh, and to help you analyze all of that. And this was such a fun project because the data was already there. All we needed to do was to build a digital infrastructure behind it. The first thing I did was to 
gather a group of colleagues who were working on in different departments of the organization and all had a stake, all had an interest in, in these dashboards. And um, we designed a minimum vi viable product. So because we already had digital experts in the organization, the whole idea of more lean and more agile methodologies of working um, wasn't completely strange to us. So what, what is a minimum viable product, perhaps for the listeners? So a minimum viable product is basically what it says. It's the, the absolute minimum that you need to have a basically functioning product, something that you can try out and to immediately test to see whether there's any, any issues with it, any bugs with it, or maybe it's actually not what the end user was looking for. So you, you build a minimum viable product so that you find out early on whether you're on the right track. It's almost like testing assumptions. Here we go again. And so um, we identified a minimum viable product for the dashboard, uh, and then we got to work. So we operationalized a lot of our TUC indicators. We translated them to digital indicators, digital metrics. And then um, we started working on the engineering part. And then we, I'm going to save you the long story of all the trouble that we ran into and all the decisions and adaptations that we had to make. But within a couple of months, we had a MVP ready for the dashboard. Um, this was still based on, on, on one of our data engineers or, or analysts running manual scripts to update the data every two weeks. It wasn't even fully automated yet, but it did give us a good impression of what a dashboard could do for you. So we started rolling this out in different departments um, and we immediately got some feedback, some very good feedback. Some people said, oh, this is nice, but I actually am more looking for something else. And the interesting thing here is that when you design an MVP, so when you're starting from scratch, um, you're working hypothetically, you're thinking to yourself, hmm, what could be useful? Maybe this, maybe that, sure, let's try this. But only when you have something in front of you becomes it very easy to understand what you're looking for. And this is the absolute value of having an MVP. It helps people immediately understand whether this is actually something that they wanna use, not hypothetically, but yeah. right now. So we started adapting it. Uh, we had short iterations. We we changed some metrics. We started. We made the decision to build a data lake to automate all of the data because biweekly updates wasn't enough. We wanted to have uh, at least daily refreshment of the data. So we hired some data engineers. We built the data lake, um, and we diversified our dashboards. And then we started rolling it out everywhere. Um, and our PML team, our monitoring and evaluation team. Uh, no understands that it's not enough to just give people tools. So we had a very extensive introduction and communication and feedback process with every single team in the organization, all of our country teams as well. And to so the everybody point, was part of the uh, of the of the process of the build-up. It build was up. a monster of a process, but luckily yeah. because we work with that MVP, we managed to do continuous updates. So even when we had already rolled it out. Every two, three weeks, we would have a couple of new things or introduced or a couple of things changed. Um, people were asking for the option to compare time periods. So two weeks later, we, we included that. Um, and now you might think, wow, that sounds awesome. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? But of course, it's not that easy. The one thing, and we have talked about this in the beginning as well, a tool and even a process is not enough for me. I like to call it the holy trinity. You have your tools, you have your processes, and then you have your culture. And people consistently underestimate the effect of culture and mindset on the effectiveness of certain ways of working. 
And even though our organization was generally what we call digital savvy or data savvy, um, you cannot escape the fact that we were an NGO working in an NGO sector under classic NGO pressure of having to deliver yeah. and deliver every single day, work plans, activity plans, budgets, indicators, trainings, you know, all of that. And so I started talking to some of our teams to see how are they using those dashboards? Is it working well for them? And some of the feedback was wonderful. Our country team said, this is awesome. We can finally filter um, our data by strategic topic and we can use it to fundraise for new projects. Um, our business development team was happy with it because they no longer had to wait for the PDL people to, to deliver the data. Yeah. Uh, some of our program managers were happy because they could finally show to their donor real time what the program status was. And then I once came to this, um, this colleague, this guy working in project management, and he was very nice. I asked him, I was like, how, so how are you enjoying the dashboards? Are they working out for you? And he said, he hesitated and he said, yeah, they're very nice. They're awesome. They're very innovative. And I was like, that's, that's nice. But can you give me examples of how you're using them? And he said, well, I don't want to, I don't mean this in a bad way. He says, I just don't have any time. I, I have so much to do. I am running around every day and I'm sure that the dashboards are awesome and, and they're very insightful, but I just don't have the time to really go through them. I'm very sorry. And this made me think because to me, the dashboards were originally designed to save people time. And for yeah. a lot of our teams that worked out quite well, but the fact that it's almost ironic to think that for a lot of people, the fact that they are so busy stops them from finding ways to, to save time basically. And this really emphasized for me the importance of making sure that your entire organization, every stakeholder, um, when it comes to data-driven decision-making tools or processes, that everyone is on board with how it works and why it works for them. What do they have to gain? Because I can tell him that he will save a lot of time if he just uses them, but he won't just believe me. Uh, just because I tell him, you're going to have to be more convincing. You're going to have to show and to take him along in that process and make sure that he can determine what is yeah. useful for him. So your, your answer to, to, to organizations who are going through a similar process, perhaps, or are willing to go through a similar process to become more data-driven as organizations, whether they work on digital uh, solutions or not. Um, if, I would, if I would summarize it in two key points. Yeah. Uh, that don't sound like every other article that says you should be doing this. Just, just do it. It's that if you're gonna if you're gonna start on a data driven process, however suits your organizational strategy best, just make sure you do two things. One is to make sure that you work with the concept of a minimum viable product, and that you work with the concept of continuous iterations. You don't wait a year to find out whether something is working. Uh, so that means that you're going to have to keep it small in order to find out if something is working. And second, the holy trinity, tools, process, culture. If you don't take along all three of them and don't just acknowledge them, but actually take them along in your strategy, how are you going to make sure that those three align? As long as you do those two things, the holy trinity and your MVP, that should get you on your way for a start, at least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Okay, so I think this is very uh, a good practical piece of advice still for the listeners. Um, two things. Thank you very much, um, Eliana. It has been a very lovely conversation. Um, I very much enjoyed to hear uh, and learn from your expertise of the role of uh, monitoring and evaluation in global development, the need to move from good intentions to results, and actually, like you're saying, to quality metrics, um, the challenges we are currently experiencing within global development, but also in particular, um, as part of your own personal experience at RW Media, uh, the opportunities of, of how organizations and individuals within organizations, global development professionals, can actually move towards becoming more data-driven and eventually trying to show the impact of, of the investments we are trying to make. Thank you very much, Eliana. Thanks.